Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa There we go. Inshallah, everybody is doing well. We begin by praising Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, the one, the only, the almighty, al-aziz, al-jabbar. And we begin by sending salawat and salam upon the most beloved, the most perfect of all creation, the leader of the prophets, leader of mankind, on Yawm al-Qiyamah, Muhammad al-Mustafa sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Our topic for tonight, as has been mentioned, is the miracles of the Prophet This is a very extensive topic, it is a very comprehensive topic, and this class is essentially an introduction to the introduction of this particular topic. Uh, Imam al-Bayhaqi, rahimahullah, has written perhaps the most comprehensive work on Dalail al-Nabuwa, which is the proofs of prophethood. And he has compiled 12 volumes of uh, miracles of the Prophet and the quantity is over a thousand. The quantity is over a thousand. Some other scholars say that there are over 1,200 miracles of the Prophet that he performed. This is in addition to then the, everything that is contained within the Quran. Now, before we get into the actual topics, I just want to uh, ask if those people who do not have any back problems, if you could please move off the wall and join us in the middle. Um, if you have back problems, of course, by all means stay. But if you're just doing it for the sake of doing it, then um, it is against the adab and it is more appropriate in etiquettes when we are seeking knowledge that we are attentive and not too laid back. Uh, and the second thing is just a small reflection. You know, SubhanAllah, it was only a couple of years ago that I was in the opposite position and we were in the basement of the Rochdale Masjid and Faith Circle was just beginning with a small number of 30 or so people. And over the years, it's very, uh, alhamdulillah, it's very nice to see the scope and the community grow to, I've heard hundreds coming at, uh, at a time. So it's, it's very good to see, alhamdulillah. And I ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and I ask we all pray for everybody who was involved in the organization of this particular class, particularly the KMY and the Soul Seed team, and then obviously our teacher, our Sheikh uh, Zohair, who has put in countless hours in preparing these classes, and it takes a lot of effort. I've seen him do the work behind the scenes, and it's not easy work. So it is because of our teachers that we are able to you know, be anywhere that we are, and our parents, so as uh, the hadith of the Prophet wasallam goes, that the one who is not grateful towards the people is not grateful towards Allah. And the, the ones that we should be most grateful towards are our parents and our teachers. So when he comes back, it would be good for us to offer our appreciation for his efforts if we haven't already done so. So with that out of the way, let us proceed into the, uh, the summary of today's talk. So that was basically the introduction. Part two is then we will be going into a bit of a conceptual discussion of what is a miracle, answering some critical questions that may arise when we think of what a miracle is and how to kind of understand it in our modern understanding. Uh, thereafter, we will briefly touch upon this concept of tawatur, uh, which is critical in understanding how we are to believe in these particular miracles. Uh, we'll have a quick group activity after that. And then we will delve into the actual miracles of the Prophet Once again, it's going to be incredibly summarized and I'm not going to be able to cover everything. Um, but inshallah, the ones that I do cover will be of benefit. And then 
we will touch upon the eternal miracle, the greatest of all miracle, the miracle that eclipses all miracles, the miracle of the Quran al-Karim. And then Kahoot and uh, other things after that. So we begin. What is a miracle? Now, before I get into the actual linguistic definitions, I want to hear from you guys. Just preliminary thoughts. What is a miracle? What is your understanding of a miracle? Hands up. Anybody? Yes. Something that is outside the scope of nature. That really is a good summary. Anybody else want to have a go? From the sisters, maybe? Yes. Yeah, that's, yeah, putting those together, that's basically the definition of what a miracle is. Um, but to go a little deeper into it, um, so the English definition of what a miracle is, is an unusual or mysterious event that is thought to have been caused by a god because it does not follow the usual laws of nature, as the sister uh, explained just over there. And then if you want to go a step deeper, uh, the root word of miracle in the English language is uh, miraculum, which is essentially an old Latin word, which means wonderful or um, an object of wonder. And then in the, its, its church context, a marvelous event caused by God. And then the Arabic is, it's called, a miracle is called a mu'ajiza, a mu'ajiza, and it comes from the root word ajiza, which means incapability, incapability of mankind to do a particular task. And within a religious context, it is uh, usually something that is incapable of man doing itself unless God allows him to do that particular thing. Now, the next part is conditions of a miracle. What constitutes a miracle? And Imam al-Qurtubi, rahimahullah, uh, what year did Imam al-Qurtubi pass away in? Does anybody know? I'm going to do that thing where Sheikh Zahir, he mentions a scholar and then he expects you guys to know what the, uh, the death date is. Anybody? Any guesses? No? Okay, at least where, where was he from? His name is a big hint. Qurtubi. Cordoba, yes. In, uh, you want to call it ancient, or it's not ancient, sorry, medieval Spain. Medieval Spain. And he passed away in uh, 671 after Hijri. So he mentions in his tafsir five particular conditions that constitute uh, the claim of a miracle to be truthful, and then the miracle itself to be a miracle itself. The first of these is, it must be something that only Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is capable of doing. So if somebody comes along and they say that my miracle is I sit down and I stretch my legs, I put my arms out. Okay, that's my miracle. Now, this is something that everyone can do. This is not something unique. This is not something special. Okay, it has to be something like, you know, uh, a wooden stick turning into a snake or the moon splitting, right? Number two, it must be something that breaks the normal pattern of our daily routine. So, for example, a person cannot come along and claim that today, right now it's night, so what precedes night will be, sorry, what succeeds night will be the day. They cannot make that prediction because this is already part of a natural uh, routine. So something that breaks that routine will be something uh, such as out of a rock comes a she-camel. That is something that defies our natural understanding, our natural understanding of routines. Number three, the claim must testify to a particular message. So if the person says that my sign is that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will turn 
this particular water into oil. Or he will move the earth when I tell it to shake. If Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala fulfills this command, then this person is telling the truth. If he does not, if it does not occur, if the water does not turn into oil, then he's obviously a liar. The fourth condition that Imam Qurtubi mentions is that a miracle must occur in order to support this claim against those who challenge him. So, for example, a person comes along and they say that, pretend there's a she-camel here, okay, and he says that this she-camel will speak on my behalf, it will testify that I am truthful and that I am a prophet of God. And let's say the she-camel, it speaks, but it says, no, he is a liar, he is not a prophet, okay? So it has contradicted this person's claim. This person is to then be rejected and shunned. Um, and the example of this uh, that uh, Imam Qutubi mentioned was uh, Musaylim al-Kadhab, the first or the second person who claimed that he was a prophet after the Prophet And he said that, and what he would do, what he did, sorry, was he spat into a particular well because he thought that it, by him spitting in that well, it will bring blessings. Um, and what, what ended up happening was that that well collapsed and all the water drained from it. So that ended up being uh, a bad event for him. And the fifth thing is that the miracle, it must be so that no one successfully comes up with the like of what he is challenging people to do. So very simply, the Qur'an. In many, many places, the Qur'an challenges its audience that bring something like it. Right? فَأْتُوا بِسُورَةٍ مِّمِثْلِهِ That bring a surah that is like this. Okay? And the Qur'an makes this challenge over and over again. And when we get to the Qur'an towards the end, uh, I will go into more detail uh, exactly what the Qur'an is challenging uh, its audience to do. Now, before we move on, now let's say somebody does meet these conditions. Let's say somebody does meet these conditions by chance. Does that automatically make them a prophet? No. And there is one particular exception. There is one person that Allah will allow to perform miracles, but what we have to look at is despite the performance of these miracles, the claim of this person that he is making after performing these miracles. What is he calling towards? Now, does anybody want to have a guess who this exception may be? Yes, the Antichrist. Al-Masih al-Dajjal. Okay? He will come along and um, anybody want to say the things that he will do? All the deceptions that he will create and cause? Anyone? Bring the dead back to life, yes. Anything else? Split a person in half. Split a person in half, yes, and then putting it back together. Okay. It'll be a time of immense drought and famine, so he will be producing vegetation out of nowhere. He will be making the skies uh, full with rain when it is, like I said, it, it'll be a drought, uh, and so on and so forth. Um, however, what is his claim? He does all these things, and then what does he call you towards? He says that I am God. Believe me, worship me. Okay, and then obviously... His claim is a false claim, and we are to reject that. Yep. Okay. Um, now, another question that may arise, um, what is the difference between a ma'ajizah and a karama? A ma'ajizah is specifically always given to a messenger or a prophet of Allah. Okay? And it is meant to be something that is larger than life. As we mentioned in the description, something that, something that defies the laws of nature, that defies the laws of physics, etc, etc. Okay, and it's meant to be experienced by a large volume of people, so that they may testify to the truth of this prophet. 
A karama, on the other hand, it is something that is much more smaller in scale. And it is usually individual experiences. And this, these are usually gifted to those who are righteous and pious, the awliya of Allah. Okay? So this is something that can happen to any one of us, provided we are of a certain spiritual state. And there are many, many countless examples in our history of the Sahaba experiencing karamat um, of the, the earlier generations. There are many instances um, of, there's a book written by Imam Suyuti, rahimahullah, where he basically discusses the possibility of seeing the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam in a, in a, in a, after his passing, seeing him in an actual vision, like while you're awake, while you're conscious. Um, and also, uh, angels as well, and he brings lots and lots and lots and lots of authentic references of many of the pious of the past, where they've experienced this. In fact, there was one per one person in particular, uh, Imran ibn Hussein. Uh, the hadith is mentioned in Sahih Muslim, where he had, where he says to his friend that after I pass away, you may tell the story, but before I pass away, do not tell the story. And after he passes away, his friend obviously tells the story. And he mentions that on a daily basis, Imran ibn Hussein would be greeting the angels. On a daily basis, you know, he, some, somebody would walk in and they would see him talking to someone and they couldn't see who it was, but it was the angels. And he ended up developing a particular condition and he ended up using a method of removing this condition by the name of cauterization. And that's where you basically burn the skin. Now, Cauterization is makruh, it is disliked, it's not haram. And this person, he was of a particular spiritual state. Uh, it, it was expected of him to not use this, but he utilized this. And when he did, the angels stopped visiting for a number of days. And this made him very depressed until he stopped using cauterization. And uh, it is then said that the angels returned and he would then once again greet him on a daily basis. So that's just one particular example. I'm sure we all have our own personal examples, many things that, that have occurred in our life that we can't explain, that have just happened by chance, right? You know, you hear these stories of people walking, crossing the street, and then just out of nowhere, they're pushed back. And when they look back, there's no one behind them. And had they taken another step, they would have been run over, run over by a car or something. Um, so there, these are just many, many examples that, uh, that of karamat that can occur to us in our daily life. So here's another question that may come up in our mind, that are miracles even possible to begin with? Or are they just stories that have been passed down through the generations? Okay, and how do we, uh, how do we uh, synthesize this with our understanding of science and all these different laws of physics, et cetera, et cetera? So before I get to what is on the slide, there is a relatively obvious thing, but it's something that we need to still, it needs to be clear to us. We are all believers, alhamdulillah. We believe that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala created this universe. That he is the one who put everything in its place. He created its laws. He is in control of all of its variables. Okay, for those of you guys who study maths, physics, etc., you guys are aware that there's all these different crazy equations for gravity, for the mass of a planet, etc., with all these different variables, right? And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is in control of all of these variables. He's able to make something occur without disturbing the constants, whatever they may be. In addition to that then, as, as it is on the screen, the third verse of Surah Baqarah. الَّذِينَ يُؤْمِنُونَ بِالْغَيْبِ That, 
of the qualities of those who are mindful of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala they believe in the unseen and the performance of miracles is a matter of the unseen it is not a naturalistic occurrence that, that happens this can only happen through quote-unquote divine intervention the splitting of the moon on its own the moon cannot do anything but rotate it cannot split apart right and we'll get to that particular incident later on and then the second part that kind of sums it up is then at the end of the fourth verse and they also have a certain faith in the hereafter as well now a second principle that I want to bring to our intention is mentioned at the bottom and that is the way Abu Bakr عن, responded to hearing about the uh, Isra al-Mi'raj or the Prophet وسلم, and this wasn't covered uh, at least in the way that I wanted, it, wanted to cover it uh, when Shaykh Zahed did this a couple of weeks ago so long story short the Prophet goes from Mecca to uh, Jerusalem from Jerusalem to uh, to the heavens we've heard the story he comes back he tells his people that this is what has happened to me in one night I went from Mecca to Jerusalem and when the mushrikeen they hear this they have a field day with it they say Muhammad وسلم, has finally lost it he's lost it he's off his chops right from in one night from Mecca to Medina he's gone mad okay and they begin quizzing they begin quizzing him etc about tell us about the the, the the travelers and tell us about the trade routes etc etc now Abu Bakr he comes along I believe it's the morning time or during the day he comes along he hasn't met the Prophet yet and he hears the mushrikeen speaking about something so they go to him and they ask him have you heard that your friend imagined that he was taken at night from Masjid al-Haram to Masjid al-Aqsa okay and they're all laughing they're all joking around and they're all making uh, they're all making fun of it Abu Bakr he hears this and he then responds he says did he really say that and they say yes then he says if he said that he has spoken the truth Abu Bakr's first inclination was to what? Accept it immediately. If he truly said that, I believe in it. Whatever my biases may be, whatever my inclinations may be, I'm putting that aside. I know the Prophet of Allah. I know he wouldn't lie. I believe in whatever he says. Okay? Now, think of it this way. For example, if a friend of mine was to come up to me and he was to say, for example, Masrur comes up to me and he says that, Hamza, in his basketball game, dunked five times. He dunked five times. No, I know Hamza, right? Hamza doesn't dunk. Um, I'm kidding, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. <laughs> okay, but hypothetically, let's say Hamza couldn't dunk. Masrur comes up to me and he says that, did you hear that uh, Hamza dunked five times in his game? My natural reaction would be, no way. No way he did that. Okay, it'd be to reject it. Until I went and I verified with him. Right? or I saw some type of footage or something of him dunking five times and then I'd be like, okay, no problem, right? But Abu Bakr, but Abu Bakr, his inclination wasn't to say, no, 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 no way. Or he didn't try making up excuses, or no, maybe he meant this. He said, no, if he truly said that he went from Mecca to Jerusalem, then I believe in it. And he continued, he didn't just say, I believe. He then gave his reasoning for it as well. So he says, so they say, so that after he said, um, I believe in it, 
um, they responded, they said, do you believe that he went by night? Oh, sorry, I already said that. Oh, no, he, do you believe that he went by night to the sacred house and returned before morning? Okay, so he completed this whole journey in one, one particular night. Abu Bakr then responded, he said, yes, verily, I believe in that which is even more astonishing than what you've just told me. Okay, I believe that he has received messages from the heaven for everything that he does. And what greater miracle is there than witnessing revelation coming down at the hands of an angel and this angel then teaching these words to the Prophet of Allah Once you've seen this, do you think anything that is considered small in this is going to be something that you would reject? Absolutely not. And let's take this a step back further. Like I mentioned at the start, we believe in Allah. We believe Allah is in control of all of these different variables and laws of this universe. So for him to split the moon, is this something that should be problematic for us? No. Sure, we might not be able to understand it, okay? But then again, why are we subjecting Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala or the workings of Allah to our logic, to our understanding? Why does it need to make sense to us? So, these are just one of the, uh, the many reasons and one of, the, one of the many ways to reconcile our understanding of miracles. I'll quickly go through this just so that we have some type of conceptual understanding. This is the final type of conceptual thing and then we'll get into the actual miracles. So this concept of mutawatir or tawatir. In the sciences of hadith, very broadly speaking, there are two main categories. So you have mutawatir and you have ahad. Okay, so mutawatir is, to summarize, it is essentially a particular incident, a particular narration that has been reported by so many people at a particular point in the chain that we, you cannot say that this could have been made up. That all these people came together for this one particular lie um, and, and then they, they spread it throughout the, throughout the community. This isn't something that is plausible, all right? And whatever is not mutawatir, it is then ahad. And majority of the ahadith are uh, ahad. Ahad roughly translates to solitary. For a hadith to be considered mutawatir, you need to have a minimum of four narrators. Four narrators, okay? Now scholars differ as to what the actual number is. Some say four, some say six, some say 10, 12, 70, even in the hundreds, okay? But the minimum is four. And as we see on the screen, this one particular hadith where the Prophet وسلم, he says that do not tell a lie against me for whoever tells a lie against me intentionally, then he will surely enter the hellfire. Now, it's not super clear, but we see five of the companions that have narrated this. So Ali ibn Abi Talib, Abu Huraira, Anas ibn Malik, Abdullah ibn Amr al-As, and Mughira ibn Shu'ba. Okay, and this particular hadith, uh, in one of, the, one, of the, one of the books of hadith mentioned that this hadith has been narrated by 62 different companions. This is very, very well mutawatir, okay? And all of them have their own slight variations, but by and large, the main text of the hadith it is all mentioned in each of these different variations. Now, this particular website is still in development. Um, this is a very preliminary uh, chain. And I would show it for other hadith as well, but um, there were some mistakes. So I, this was the one that I, I checked myself that all these uh, narrators are there. So this hadith is considered mutawatta. We have five different companions. Like I mentioned, there are 62 uh, in total. Now, the, the reason I'm bringing this up because there are many miracles of the Prophet that are narrated in a mutawatir manner, that are narrated by so many people that it is impossible for us to 
uh, think that this is made up by any chance, all right? And one of these will be, that we will discuss, is the moon splitting incident. Okay, finally. Miracles of the Prophet wasallam. So this is just a categorization, but before I get to that, I want to begin this by saying that the entire life of the Prophet it's a miracle. Every aspect of his being, every aspect of his existence, it is miraculous. His character, his, his physical being, his interactions, his wisdom, his knowledge, everything. It is considered to be a miracle. And there is a line of poetry of uh, Alama Muhammad Iqbal, one of the great Islamic thinkers of our past century. And he says that, sure you can deny the existence of God, but how can you deny the existence of Muhammad? How can you deny the, the life of Muhammad? The impact that it had on this world. An unlettered, uneducated shepherd who was given revelation, and from that revelation, sprung one of the greatest civilizations in human history. The ripple effect that began with just one man and his mission. It is miraculous. Orientalists can't explain it. And then the Quran. All right, so putting aside all of his personal achievements, the miracle of the Quran. The mental gymnastics that some of these people do, the Orientalists I'm referring to, to say that the Prophet he, you know, he would go into these like trance-like states, and he had, you know, he had, a, he was a very intellectual person. He was a, he was a genius, and he would go into these trance-like trance-like states where he would then come up with these verses, and then he would teach his people. This is just one of the many crazy things that Orientalists are saying uh, about the miracles of the Prophet So behind us is just some of the categorizations of the miracles. Uh, that are listed. Now, like I mentioned at the start, Imam Bayhaqi mentions over a thousand in his 12 volume uh, book series on the proofs of prophethood. And these are just some of the categorizations that I've, uh, that I've come up with. So we have the anatomical, his ones with nature, his ones with animals, food and drink, so on and so forth. The first of this we will begin with, pardon me, we begin with the miracles that occurred at his birth. Now, a lot of the incidents that occurred at his birth, they're not super authentically narrated, but they are mentioned in the books of Sirun. So the first of these is reported by Ibn Sa'ad in his tabaqat, where he says that at the time of the birth of the Prophet wasallam, a light shone from underneath his mother, and this light shone all the way to the palaces of Sham. This is the first miracle that is mentioned. And there are also miracles that occurred before his birth as well. The way that the world was being set up for the arrival of the Prophet ﷺ, but that is going to go to, we're going to be here for a while if we get into that. And then there are other miracles that are mentioned, but these are not verified. Uh, the scholars, they mention that this, these aren't unverified chains, but they, nonetheless, they mention this, these uh, incidents in the books of Sirah. So when the Prophet ﷺ was delivered, it is said that the 14 balconies of the, uh, the palaces of Kisra, the Persian king, they collapsed. 14 balconies collapsed. The fire that the Zoroastrians would worship that had been going on for centuries, that was extinguished at the time of the Prophet's birth. And then there is a lake, Lake Sawa or something like that. Um, it's in modern day Iran, just near the border between Iran and Iraq. 
uh, and there's, it is said that there were churches that surrounded it, they burnt down, they collapsed at this particular incident. But once again, these chains are unverified. Uh, and, the, and then we move on from his birth. He's around now, he's a little older. And this is the incident with Halima Asadiya. And she was the second, first or second wet nurse of the Prophet Now it is said that she was somebody who was experiencing a lot of famine. She was experiencing drought where she was because she was a Bedouin. And she had no milk in her breasts. She, she had a she-camel that was not giving off any milk. And she also had a another foster child that she was taking care of. Uh, but the child was usually hungry and it would, it would go to sleep crying, essentially. She goes to Mecca in search of a child to take care of. And she comes across the Prophet She rejects him because he was an orphan. And these foster mothers would look for somebody with a lot of money, or at least with a father, so that they could get paid well for their uh, care of their children. But the Prophet ﷺ, like I said, he was an orphan. And not just her, but many of the other ladies that would go to Mecca for this particular reason, they would not take the Prophet at all. Until she was there for about a week, she couldn't find anyone. Her husband then tells her to, let's take this orphan child. Um, and they say, and he said to her that there is no harm in taking this orphan child and perhaps Allah will bless us through him. And so that's what they did. And almost instantly, almost instantly, when she got the Prophet ﷺ, she puts, she puts him up in her arms, right? And then she begins to, uh, then he begins to suckle from her. Immediately when he begins to do that, milk begins to flow from her breast. And so much so, he drinks to his fill. The other foster child that was going to sleep hungry, he drinks to his fill. He goes to sleep for the first time in ages without crying. The next day they find, the husband goes out and he finds that the she-camel is filled with milk. And they both, both husband and wife drink to their fill. And so this is just, this is a blessing from, uh, of keeping the Prophet And around two years of age, the children would then be returned to their respective parents. However, Halima tried to negotiate with the mother of the Prophet and she wanted to keep him for longer because of all the blessings that he was bringing her with. Moving on, there are other miracles that occurred, but uh, time is short, so I want to cover as much as possibly can. Now we move on to the anatomical miracles of the Prophet, which basically just means the miracles to do with his body. And I've listed, summarized just some of them. The first of these is to do with his face. Now we've all heard the description of his face that he that his face was radiant, that it was bright like the moon, that it was more beautiful like the moon, that it was the most beautiful thing that all the Sahaba had seen. Okay? And the effect that the, his face had on some people, subhanAllah, some people would become Muslim just by looking at him. Okay? Uh, there is an incident, uh, a particular companion by the name of Abu Rimtha at Taymi. He says that, I came to the Prophet with one of my sons. The Prophet was shown to me. When I saw him, I exclaimed that this is indeed a prophet of Allah. And he testified after meeting him. Another instance, Abdullah ibn Salam, one of the chief rabbis of Medina. When the Prophet ﷺ arrived in Medina, all the people rushed to greet him. Okay, they're calling out, um, the Messenger of Allah has come, the Messenger of Allah has come, the Messenger of Allah has come. Abdullah goes out and he sees all the, the, all the ruckus that's going on. And he says, I came out with the people to see. And when I saw his face clearly, I immediately said, or immediately knew that this could not be the face of Elijah. And this was, in the, this was the spark that eventually lit 
sorry, that lit, that would later then lead to his conversion uh, to a Muslim, to become a Muslim. The next thing mentioned is the saliva of the Prophet um, And there are many different stories that are, that are associated with, with this, but essentially there are many, uh, of the stories that are mentioned are, he has put his saliva into a pot of food or into, uh, usually it's, it's to do with a pot of food and this pot of food is enough for like five or six people, right? But after he puts his saliva in it, it feeds an entire army, it feeds an entire camp of people. Moving on to the sweat of the Prophet Sallallahu so The sweat and slash the fragrance. Now, it is said that when the Prophet would pass by a certain alley, right, after, long after he'd be gone, you could, you, would tell that, you could tell that the Prophet was there because, just because of the fragrance that would be left. If he was to shake your hand, if he was to place his hand on your head, you, could, you would know that this is the smell of the Prophet Sallallahu And it is said that it, is, it was the sweetest of all smells. There's a very uh, interesting incident that occurred when the Prophet ﷺ was sleeping in the house of Anas ibn Malik, one of his companions. And he was sleeping and he began sweating as he was sleeping. And the mother of Anas ibn Malik, Umm Sulaim, she comes along with a small bottle with a long neck and she begins capturing the sweat of the Prophet ﷺ. Okay? And now the Prophet wakes up and he knows, and he's like, you know, what are you doing? And she says that. That, that your sweat is uh, something that we take and we mix with our perfume and it is something that makes our perfume the best of perfumes. Okay? So this is just one of the, uh, and this hadith is mentioned in Sahih Muslim. This is one of the merits of the Prophet's sweat. We move on now to the speech of the Prophet the miracles associated with his, sweet, with his speech. Now we all know, we've all heard this term, Jawami al-Kalim. Right, that he was given speech that was concise, but it was profound with meaning. And there are many, many ahadith that attest to this. All right? One that I was just thinking of on the way here, uh, where he advises one of his companions to say, uh, uh, I believe in Allah and then remain steadfast. And this really, if you really think about it deeply, it summarizes the entirety of Islam. Believe in Allah and then whatever is associated with believing in Allah, Remain steadfast after that. Four words, literally four words, and it encompasses the entirety of the religion. I want to narrate a particular scenario with this, a very interesting scenario. A man, a companion, or initially he was just a man, by the name of Dimad. Dimad. He, came to the, he came to Mecca, and he was initially from a tribe from Yemen. He came to Mecca and he was known as somebody that would protect people who had been overcome with some type of magic or they'd been affected with some type of charm. He comes to Mecca and he hears the mushrikeen speaking that the Prophet has gone, he's gone mad, right? Inna Muhammadan majnoon. That verily Muhammad is majnoon, he's crazy. Okay, he's been affected with some type of charm. Now, when Dimad hears of this, he says that if I was to come across this man, perhaps Allah Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will cure him through my hands. Okay? Eventually, he comes into contact with the Prophet. And he says to the Prophet, Muhammad, I can protect one who is under the influence of charm. And Allah cures whom he desires at my hand. Is this something that you desire? And the Prophet responds. And he responds with the response that we hear every single week at Jum'ah. He says, In alhamdulillah, nahmaduhu wa nasta'inu. Okay, 
ashadu anna Muhammadan abduhu rasuluh That praise is due to Allah We praise him and we seek his help Whomsoever he guides, none can misguide And whomsoever he leaves astray, none can guide back I testify that there is none worthy of worship to the end of the, uh, to the, end of the statement The Prophet says this And Dhamad is just, he's awestruck He's bewildered He doesn't know what to say He says to the Prophet, repeat these words of yours before me Repeat these words The Prophet repeats this, these words three times He says the statement three times to which then Qimad responds and he says I've heard the words of soothsayers And I've heard the words of magicians And I've heard the words of poets But I've never heard such words as yours And they reach the depth And in brackets it says They reach the depth of the eloquence of the ocean Bring forth your hand so that I may Take an oath of fealty An oath of allegiance to you Based upon Islam He becomes Muslim right then and there and he also becomes Muslim on behalf of his tribe as well. Now, I just want us to take a, st a step back and just reflect on this for a moment. If these are the words of the Prophet. These aren't from the Quran. These are inspired by the Quran, sure, but they're not directly from the Quran. These are the words of the Prophet وسلم, affecting somebody who is coming to him with a relatively sincere heart and a relatively sincere mind, affecting him to such a degree that he's, he's like, I'm yours. I'm yours. I believe in whatever you're saying. What about in the Quran? What about the one who comes to the Quran with an open heart and an open mind? What effect should that have on, a, on an individual? And this is something for us to reflect upon. Are we approaching the Quran in this manner? Are we approaching it just to listen it, listen to it, listen to its melodies? And many of us, and I myself am guilty of this sometimes, we are just listening to it for the truths, right? Maqamat, whatever it may be. Okay, we're just listening to it because it sounds nice. But even though we may not necessarily understand every single word of what is being said, let us still approach it with an open heart and with an open mind. Perhaps it may have an effect on us. Even though we don't necessarily understand it, like I said, but if swear words have an effect on us, if words of English have an effect of us, good or bad, what about the words of Allah? What about the words of Allah? Will this not have an effect on our hearts and on our souls? A point for us to reflect, inshallah. Now we get to the great miracle of the splitting of the moon. Now, the first mention of this, the most uh, hard to take apart mention of this, is in the Quran, Surah number 54, Surah Qamar. Surah Qamar. That the hour has drawn near and the moon has. Split into two. Now, a bit of context to this particular incident. Mushrikeen of Mecca come to the Prophet wasallam. He's sitting in Mecca. He's in, in a place called Mina. They come to him and they say, to test his truthfulness, they say, if you're truly a prophet of God, show us a miracle, split that moon. Okay? Now, different narrations mention different things. Some say that he, you know, he, began to, he did two rak'at, uh, he prayed, made dua, and then he pointed to the moon and it split. Others say that he just stood up, he pointed at the moon, and it split. It splits, it comes back together. Now the mushrikeen, they asked for the miracle, they got the miracle, but they've said that we've been affected by magic. We'll get into the narrations in the next slide. Yes, so, like I mentioned at the start about Mutawatir, so Imam, uh, Imam, Imam Tahawi and Imam Ibn Kathir, 
two very great scholars of our history. I'm sure we've at least all heard of Ibn Kathir. They've mentioned that this incident is mutawatir, meaning it is qat'i, it is something that is definite, and it is necessary to put our faith in because of how many people have reported this. Now, seven is the amount of companions that I could find, but I'm sure that there are more companions that narrated this particular incident. And like we said, four was the, the, the minimum for, uh, for a particular incident to be considered mutawatir. Okay, I got seven right there. So this is very, very much something that is proven. It is not something that was made up. Now, there are different interpretations of this. Some say that, oh, this is, this is actually referring to an incident that will happen. Uh, towards the end of time, okay? As the Quran mentions, that the heavens have been cleft asunder, okay? The heavens have been torn apart. But, like the, we don't look at our scripture through a narrow lens, okay? We don't take one incident and just look at that. We take it holistically, okay? So the Quran mentions the moon split, okay? When was the moon split? We look at the hadith. The hadith, like I've said, it happened during the life of the Prophet ﷺ. It was a literal event that occurred. The moon literally split into two. Okay, so these are some of the uh, some of the hadith that are in reference to this incident. Can I get somebody to read these out? It's a hadith on the splitting of the moon. Narrated Muhammad bin Jubayr bin Mu'tim from his father Jubayr who said the moon was split during the time of the Messenger of Allah until it became as two sections, one above this mountain and one above that mountain. So they said, Muhammad has cast a spell upon us. Some of them said, if he could cast a spell upon us, he cannot cast a spell upon all the people. And as Malik said, the people of Mecca asked the Messenger of Allah to produce a miracle, and he showed them the splitting of the moon into two parts, until they saw the Mount of Hera between them. And Abdullah ibn Masood reported, uh, the moon was split in two parts during the time of Allah's Messenger, and they saw it two parts. in two parts, Sorry. and then Allah said, be witnesses. Be witnesses, okay. So these are just three ahadith from three different companions that are mentioning this particular incident. The moon was split into two, two sections, one was above one mountain, the other was above another, it was on the other side of the other mountain. Now there are objections, possible objections that may come up to this event. And these are something that people usually bring up, especially non-Muslims, when uh, we tell them of this incident. So number one is, if such a monumental event occurred, the splitting of the moon, the moon is, and it was said there was a full, it was a full moon that night, so it was very bright, it was very big. If, er, if, um, if everybody could see this in Mecca, or if it was at nighttime, anybody at nighttime, if they could see this, then why aren't there more narrations of this from outside? And the truth is, and the reality is, sorry, the reality is that, there were people outside of Mecca that did see it. Okay, so like we mentioned, the mushrikeen in the hadith, in the first one he says, it says that uh, some of them said if he could cast a spell upon us, he cannot cast a spell upon all the people. So they thought that the people that have witnessed this, they've all been, they've all been bewitched. Okay, but let us now go out outside of Mecca to people that are traveling by in caravans, etc. Let's go and ask them. And that's what they did. They sent out people to go ask these people. And it is narrated that these people came back with information that the travelers, those outside of Makkah, they did see the splitting of the moon. Okay. Another uh, point to be raised is that at that particular time, unless you were actively looking at the sky, 
which not many people are doing that all the time, right? Remember, this didn't happen for hours and hours. This was a very quick incident. The moon split, went back together, couple of minutes maybe max, okay? So not everybody is focusing on the moon unless you're actively looking up to, at the sky. Generally, at nighttime, where are people? Inside, at home. They, everyone's got roofs, even in those days. People had roofs, okay? Um, another point to raise. There are historical documentation of a Maharaja, a king, in a part of India, Kerala, who witnessed this incident and he had it written down. He had it written down in his personal diary. And there are different reports that mention that some say that he ended up traveling to Mecca or to Medina to meet the Prophet um, and he became Muslim and then he passed away in Yemen. This is all later on, but we do know, we do have evidence that he is somebody who witnessed this all the way in India at that particular time. He witnessed it and he documented it. And even Orientalists, certain Orientalists acknowledge that this is a reality. Um, scientifically possible, there's, this is a bit of a long discussion. I encourage everybody, if, you would, if you're interested in this, there's a good video by Sheikh Uthman ibn Farooq that goes into this. It's about 30 minutes long. Um, I'm not going to cover it here now because we are running out of time. Oh, rejection. Okay. His miracle with food and water. There are so many narrations. Um, I'm going to just give us a couple, one or two, and we move on to the others. So there is a particular incident with dates. Uh, Abu Huraira narrates this. So he says that the people were afflicted by hunger, and the Messenger of Allah asked me, is there anything to eat? So Abu Huraira had a bag of dates. He gives it to the Prophet wasallam. The Prophet makes dua. He puts his hand in the bag and he gives, and he, he tells Abu Huraira, call 10. Call 10 of the other companions, call 10 of them to come and eat. So 10 come, they eat from that bag till they're filled. Once they're done, they leave. He says, call 10 again. And it is said that 10 kept on coming until the entire army was satisfied. Until the entire army ate till they're filled from that bag. So much so. That he gives this bag back to Abu Hurairah. He tells Abu Hurairah to eat. He eats, and then he says that, take what you bought and put your hand in the bag and do not turn it upside down. He says, I took it and I did as the Prophet told me to do. He says, I ate from that bag during the life of the Prophet. I ate from that bag during the Caliphate of Abu Bakr. I ate from that bag during the Caliphate of Umar, which was how many years long? How many years long was the Caliphate of, uh, of Umar? Ten. Ten years. So he ate for that, in, that entire time from that bag. Not he wasn't the only thing that he was eating, but I'm saying from that bag he was eating. He was eating during that lifetime without having to replace it. Okay, he ate it all the way up until the murder of Uthman radiAllahu anhu. And Uthman's reign was how long? No. Not ten years. That was Umar. 12, 13 years. That was his reign. So Abu Huraira ate from this bag during all the way up to Umar reign. This is how many years? This is 25 years after the death of the Prophet. He says, and then after this, after the murder of Uthman, uh, the bag was taken from me. In addition to this, um, there are numerous narrations, numerous narrations of the companions as they're eating with the Prophet, they're, uh, they're witnessing, they're hearing. 
the glorification of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala from the fruit. They're hearing the fruit glorify Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala as the Prophet is eating it. And this is, so this is you could say, a, a karamat that the uh, companions witnessed. I'll quickly move on. His miracles with nature. I'll mention one hadith that I really, really like. So this is narrated by Abu Dhar radiallahu anhu. He says, I was present with the Prophet in a circle, and in his hands were a couple of pebbles. And everybody in the circle could hear the tasbih from these pebbles. They could hear the, the pebbles glorifying Allah, subhanAllah, alhamdulillah, etc., etc. He gives these pebbles to Abu Bakr. Abu Bakr hears it, and he says, we could hear it as well. He then gives, he takes it back from Abu Bakr, he gives it to Umar. Same thing, the pebbles are glorifying Allah. Everybody in this circle can hear it. He gives it to Uthman. Once again, everybody can hear it. And then he says he takes it from Uthman, then he gives it to me, him, Abu Dhar. And he could no longer hear it, the glorification. So this is another uh, instance of, uh, this is another miracle of the Prophet It is also related that when the revelation first came down to the Prophet, as he was on his way back to his house, it is said that every tree and stone that he passed by was prostrating towards the Prophet And in addition to this, any time that they would pass by certain rocks and trees, they would say, uh, they would say, Assalamu alaikum ya Rasulullah. They would greet the Prophet sallallahu um, alaihi wasallam. I'll mention this as well. Uh, at the time of the conquest of Makkah, the Prophet enters into Makkah, and as we know, there were idols that were around the Kaaba. Three hundred and sixty idols that were around the Kaaba. And when the Prophet entered the Haram, or when he entered specifically the area of the Kaaba. He has a staff in his hand and he points to each and every single one of the sorry before he points he recites this verse that verily uh, the truth has come and falsehood has departed falsehood has vanished or departed indeed falsehood is bound to vanish he recites this verse and he points this he points his staff at uh, the statues. Now keep in mind these statues it is said they were reinforced with lead. Their feet were reinforced with lead. They were well into the ground. The Prophet points his staff at these, recites his first points his staff at these. The ones that are facing uh, head on they fall back. The ones that are turned around they fall forward. And he doesn't touch them, he doesn't do anything, he just points at them. And they fall down. Moving on the prophecies of the Prophet and the predictions that he made. Now there are ample, I've listed some, there's books that have been written on these, and uh, this is a topic that everybody likes to go through. I will just mention one that I really, really particularly like. Now hadith is Hassan, it is there's a slight weakness to the to the to the to the chain, but its meaning ended up being true. So Bara ibn Azib is the companion who narrates this, and he says that we were instructed by the Messenger of Allah. This was during the campaign of the Khandaq, the Battle of the Trench. He says that we were, the, we were instructed by the Prophet to strike a particular rock. None of us could do it. So the Prophet comes along, he has his axe, he says, Bismillah, and he strikes it. And a third of this rock falls apart. He says, Allahu Akbar, I have been given the keys to the Levant. Levant, Sham, Syria, Jordan, that, that area, modern day area. I've been given the keys to the Levant. 
By Allah, I can see its red palaces at this moment. He then strikes the rock a second time. Another third of it falls down. He then says again, Allahu Akbar, I have been given the keys to Faris. Faris referring to Persia, modern day Iran. I can see the white palaces. I can see its white palaces. Okay? He does it again. He strikes the rock a third time. And now it's completely gone. He says, Allahu Akbar. I have been given the keys to Yemen. By Allah, I can see the doors, I can see the gates of Sana'a. And as we all know, during the time of Umar عن, Muslims expanded all the way to Persia. Uh, they expanded all the way to the Levant. They took both of these places. During the time of the Prophet, Yemen became Muslim. Um, and so all these predictions ended up coming true. Now finally, the eternal miracle. Now we run out of time and I probably won't go through all of it. Okay, so I'll just quickly mention the Qur'an's eternal miracle, the eternal challenge. As we mentioned at the start, the Qur'an, one of the five conditions was that the challenge that is making, that the, that the miracle is making, is that uh, it's something that cannot be accomplished by anybody that is attempting to attempt the challenge. Okay, and the Qur'an makes this claim that you cannot produce even a surah like it. So initially it begins with, uh, let them produce a recitation that is, uh, that is similar to it if they are truthful. Okay, so it's a general type of thing. If you, are, if you think you can take the Prophet up on this task, then produce something that is like it, or that, that is like all of it, or whatever the revelation was at the time. Okay, when they couldn't do that, then a second verse is revealed. Uh, chapter 11, which is Surah Hud. Okay, then the quantity is decreased. If you are truthful, then produce 10 surahs like it. Produce 10 surahs like it. When they couldn't even do that, produce one surah like it. When they couldn't even do that, Allah, then, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala then reveals that if you were to get all of mankind and jinn kind to be working together in trying to accomplish this task, then it is something that you, you could do no matter how much you supported each other. No matter how much effort you put in, you cannot make something that is equivalent to the Qur'an. And there are many famous incidents of famous poets at the time. Um, just for the sake of the example, I'll go through one. And that is of... I'll go through the stories and I'll go back to that. So one of them is of Walid ibn Mughira, who was the father of Khalid ibn Walid. Now it is said that he was he was one of the chiefs of the clans of Quraysh, and he was also one of the most prolific uh, poets at the time. And he bursts about this by saying that I am one of the greatest, no one can compete with me in the rhetoric or the composition of poetry. Okay. Now one day he's passing by the Prophet wasallam, and he hears the recitation of the Quran. And this has a visible effect on him. He is shaken by it, he is startled by it. And the news of this, there were others that witnessed this, the news of this, reaches all throughout Mecca. And people are, seeing, people are starting to think, Walid ibn Mughira, he's getting affected. Is he going to become Muslim? And if he was to become Muslim, this would be a very big victory for the Muslims because he was very influential and he was very powerful. Now, Abu Jahl, he comes in and he hears of this incident. He goes to Walid ibn Mughira and he says to him, 
or my uncle say something against Muhammad وسلم, so that the people will know that you are not with him, that you are against him. And Walid says to him, what can I say? What can I say? After hearing what I heard, what can I say? For by Allah, there is none amongst you that knows poetry in the way that I do. Nor can anyone compete with me in its composition or its rhetoric. Not even in the poetry of the jinns. Meaning that I'm, I can, I'm excellent even in the poetry of the jinns. And yet, I swear by Allah, I swear by Allah, Muhammad's recitation of the Qur'an does not bear any similarity to anything I know. And I swear by Allah, the speech that he says is very sweet and it is adorned with beauty and charm. Its first part is fruitful and its last part is abundant, meaning abundant in meaning. It dominates and cannot be dominated and it will certainly crush all that is beneath it. This is Walid ibn Maghira, one of the foremost poets of the Qurayshis at the time. So he's given up. He's heard, the, he's heard this, he's given up. He says, there's nothing I can do. Abu Jahl tries to, you know, tries to push him, tries to push him, you know, say something, say something. He says, give me a couple of days and then I'll go and say something to the Prophet. He had his chance to think over it. He was affected by it. He could have accepted the message. What does he do in his arrogance, in his peer pressure, you could say? He goes back to the Prophet and he says, this thing you recited, this Quran, must be a type of magic that you have that, that has some type of effect on its listeners. Okay? He rejects the message. And then the verses of Surah Maddathir are then revealed, condemning him. Uh, and this is about 10 verses that condemn him, condemn him to Jahannam. And then there are other examples of Unais al-Ghifari, who was also a foremost pro, uh, a poet amongst the, the mushrikeen, who heard the Quran and he said, this cannot be from any man. Same with Urtubah ibn Rabi'ah, once again, he goes to the Prophet, he's offering him power, he's offering him money. He says, uh, we will offer you more than anybody has offered you before. The Prophet just starts reciting Hamim and to the end of the surah, Urtubah hears this and he's like, so what? The Prophet says, I've given my answer. Urtubah says, okay, well, I understand now, and he leaves away. He says, there's nothing I can say to this person. I want to go back really quickly. These are just some of the, the categories, the aspects of what makes the Quran uh, miraculous. To summarize, basically, a lot of it is to do with its grammatical aspect of it. So the, the, the sentence structure, the composition, the way that it flows, the way that it rhymes, etc., etc. Um, so that's one aspect, the grammatical aspect of it. Then there's the predictions, okay? The victory of the Romans that it makes is one of the most famous of these predictions. Another aspect of its miraculous nature is its preservation. What book, what holy book I should say, has been preserved over the course of 1400 years? The way that it's been transmitted. We spoke about mutawatir before. Quran is the most mutawatir thing in our tradition. It is the most mutawatir thing in our tradition. And not just one way of reciting, at least seven, minimum of seven ways of reciting have been kept in this format. That, have, that have, They've been recited by so many different people that it is impossible for anybody to have come up with uh, any type of mistakes. And it's been critiqued as well. So there's no way of saying that there have been mistakes in the Quran that have been passed down. Now, a lot of these uh, things that are mentioned on the list, they're very abstract concepts. The last thing that I mentioned, the effects that it has on the, uh, that it has on the hearts. Most of the scholars, they mention these 12 things. Some say there are about 50 different categories of miracles. Um, 
But something that is less mentioned, uh, more of a minor opinion, is that another aspect of the miraculous nature of the Qur'an is the effect that it has on the hearts. As we saw, as we just heard about Walid ibn Maghira, he was a non-Muslim, but he hears this recitation and he is completely, he's befuddled. Same with uh, the, the person earlier who came from Yemen. He was also somebody who, he came with an agenda, but he hears the Qur'an, stops dead in his tracks. So this is another aspect that we should not uh, underestimate the effect of the Qur'an on its listeners. These are just some of the reasons why we also, just, to, just for everyone's knowledge, for the sake of knowledge, quick reasons why the Qur'an cannot be from the Prophet So number one is the difference of the style and language between the Qur'an and the Hadith. People have done studies where they, where they uh, analyze the words found in the Qur'an and they analyze the words that are found in the Hadith. And they find that 83% of the words that are found in the Qur'an are not in the Hadith and that 65 or something percent of the words of the Hadith are not found in the Qur'an. Meaning that there is an obvious, there's a difference in uh, the language that is used, otherwise there would be a lot of similarity between the two. But there is a obvious discrepancy between the two. Number two is the Prophet's lack of control over revelation. Okay? So many instances throughout the seerah where revelation just came upon him and he had no control over it. Okay? Number three, the separation between the emotional experiences of the Prophet and the speech of the Qur'an. So, an obvious example is during the, the year of sadness, where the Prophet experiences the death of Abu Talib, he experiences the death of his wife, uh, Khadija, and then Taif as well. Now, verses are revealed to reassure him, but they aren't directed towards these incidents. Okay? They aren't directed towards these incidents. Meaning, if it was from the Prophet, if this Qur'an was from the Prophet, then this would be a form of him expressing his sadness, expressing his depression. Right? It would be a means of him expressing his grief over all the losses that have incurred upon him. But, despite these major events that occurred in his life, it is a separation. Yes, Allah reveals verses to comfort him, but they're not, they're not directed towards the, those particular incidents. The, third things, the, uh, the fourth of these things is the Qur'an's re rebuking of the Prophet Sallallahu So, uh, I'm not going to get into that. But there are many instances where it is said that, you know, the, uh, the Prophet has done something. Sorry, pardon me. The Prophet has done something, but the Qur'an rebukes him and says for him to not do that. Another thing is that the Qur'an only mentions the Prophet's name four, five times, okay? While he's mentioned Musa name, how many times? 163, something of this nature. Otherwise, if it was a book from him, then, you know, it'd be saying, you know, Muhammad, be, Muhammad would be the centerpiece of this book. And that basically brings us to the end of our talk of the miracles of the Prophet I know this was incredibly rushed. There was a bit of problem with time and starting, uh, but I hope some of these points were of benefit that we've learned something new that our faith has been reimbursed our faith has been reinforced our love for the prophet وسلم, has increased and we've learned something new for us to take home and implement in our lives i ask allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to accept from all of us all of our efforts and allow us to follow in the path of the the prophets of the siddiqeen and the shuhada may allah subhanahu wa ta'ala accept from the the team that organizes these events and uh, put more effort, put more barakah in their efforts. Subhanakallah wa bihamdik wa nashadu wa la ilaha illa anta astaghfiruka wa tubu ilayhi.